Well, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. I hope you have some plans and preparations. Is anyone going to New York for the Macy's Day Parade? Been there, done that, huh? Just checking. When we were up in New York, a lot of people would go down for that. And apparently it's a sight to see. We have a Thanksgiving situation here in Luke 17. And it ends with Jesus asking this question. We're not all ten cleansed. Now, these were ten men that had leprosy. Leprosy could have been any kind of skin disease, but leprosy was no, it's a terrible disease. And it puts white scales. Uh, you eventually start losing uh, digits because you lose all feeling and you reach into the fire and don't know it. And um, people were afraid that it was communicable. And so they were outcast from all of society, from fellowship, uh, from food, from accommodations. And sometimes they would band together. You saw in the Old Testament reading there were four that had banded together. And here there are ten. And it's interesting how leprosy had uh, dropped barriers because one of the ten was a Samaritan. Samaritans lived up in the northern part of Israel when Israel was uh, exiled in 722 and uh, 586 B.C., um, the conquering people said, we know how to take care of this. So they took some of their own pagan people and settled them in northern Israel, and they intermarried with the Jews that were left and not exiled. And so they were kind of a mongrel race, you know, half Jew and half who knows what. And uh, they came up with their own religion, which was pagan-oriented. So both from a racial and a religious standpoint, you know, the rest of Israel said, you've got to stay away from these people. So, in fact, when the uh, Jews went north um, uh, into Israel, they wouldn't go through Samaria. They would cross the Jordan, go up on the east side, and then come back across to get up to Galilee. It was that much. But here, here um, one of the ten is a Samaritan, a foreigner. And apparently, uh, this type of disease dropped nationalistic barriers and you can see that in disaster all sorts of people come along I don't think in Paradise California they're asking are you Republican or Democrat they're asking did your house burn down and this is what happened here they did what the law required them to do they they were well the law uh, the Old Testament law had many categories of unclean Part of that had to do with ceremony. Part of it had to do with teaching the people of Israel and, of course, the believers. And we are believers, and so we learn from that, that there are some things that are personally and societally wrong. And the only way to handle those things is to stay away from them or you will be infected too. And uh, so this phenomena of skin disease or leprosy in the Old Testament had become kind of a, a metaphor for sin because sin, first of all, separates you and then it destroys you. You might remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when 
they were having all this abundance and they were naming the animals and they were fellowshiping with, with each other and they were walking with God in the afternoon in the garden. And then they disobeyed God and sin was found and uh, their whole mind was darkened, their heart was hardened, their wills were put in chains so that they couldn't do what, what they wanted to do, even the good things, the right things. And, um, you know, several things happened to them. First of all, God came walking in the evening and said they, they were afraid. They had an emotional separation. They wanted to be with God. Part of them did, their creator. But part of them was afraid. They were emotionally separated. And then they were socially separated. Uh, uh, the first thing Adam did was throw Eve under the bus. This woman you gave me, you know, she caused me to sin. And I guess he heard about that for the rest of his life, all 900 years. That, that was not a great way to start, was it? So there was some separation there. And then they were separated from God because it said they hid themselves. Instead of walking with God, they hid themselves. And then he exiled them from the Garden of Eden. They were separated from nature. Their ecological system was disrupted. So sin separates, and that's why, and eventually, uh, one son killed another. And you can see uh, down through the Old Testament how branches of the, uh, their children were just mean as they could be. And some tried to follow God. And eventually they all died because the wages of sin is death. Well, that's why leprosy became a metaphor for sin because it separates. A leper could not live in the village, could not live in the home of his family, could not partake in the food. He was just separate from everybody and everything. And eventually it created these awful things in his own life like fingers and toes dropping off and noses and and eventually it resulted in death. So the, the law had a lot of things. You can look in Leviticus 7, and it will tell you a lot about this. And one thing was you didn't go close to people. So these ten lepers stood afar off, is what it says. And uh, as they go into a village, ten men with leprosy stood at a distance, and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. A master someone in charge, someone who has authority. And maybe they had heard about Jesus. He healed one leper and told that leper, don't tell anybody because I'm in my discipleship phase of my ministry. I'm not yet drawing large crowds. I've got to train some leaders before the crowds come so that we can disciple the leaders. So don't tell anybody or all these crowds will start coming. And the leper did what? He went out and told everybody it would listen. And so Jesus had so many crowds around, he had to get out on a boat to talk to them. He had to sneak away with his apostles to get some quiet time to continue their training. So maybe they had heard that Jesus could heal lepers. Jesus, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. Well, what a denouement. What a letdown. 
I mean, I'm in Naaman's camp. Remember Naaman? I figured he'd come up and say some words and wave his hand and do something. And Jesus says, go see the priest. Don't come down here. I'm not going up there. I'm not going to lay hands on you and pray a prayer. I'm not going to slay you in the spirit. Just go see the priest. Well, Leviticus said, if you're ever healed of leprosy, the priests were the health inspectors of the day. And so their job was to certify this person was indeed healed. And there were all these things. They were supposed to burn their clothes, take a bath, and go visit their family, then burn their clothes again, take another bath, all this uh, ritual cleansing. So they were required to go to the priest, and it says, on the way. They said, whoa, look at this. The leprosy's gone. And so nine of the lepers, being good Jews, went and did what the law required and saw the priest, and they were certified, certified clean, and they could go back to their families and their lives. But one of them said, whoa, look at this. He must be God. Remember dog people and cat people? Remember that? And the cat people say, I must be God. And the dog people say, he must be God. So nine lepers said, we must be God. We went and got ourselves healed. And now we can go. We got what we came for. We got healed. So now we're done with God. Okay? Lord, if you'll save me from this disease, this financial debt, this horrible thing, I will serve you all my days. And then recovery occurs, and that's the last time you see him. One of the things I hate most, love most, and hate most about being a pastor is when people come with their children, they want them to be baptized. Uh, the sign of the covenant, part of the church. And I go and visit with them. We go through the gospel uh, of make sure that they're Christians. Uh, then we go through the covenant commitments. And then... Uh, wonderful they come in and they they take these vows before the congregation to rear their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and the congregation takes a vow to help them and then we put the seal of the covenant on these children like circumcision in the Old Testament and everybody rejoices and then I never see them again you've promised you took vows. But we got what we wanted. We got the magic right put on our children so we can go home now. And that's what these nine lepers did. They got what they wanted. They were done. But then one of them said, one of them said, something happened in his mind. Something happened in his heart. And he said, it's not the healing. It's the healer. More important than getting healing was I found the master. I found the healer. So then he came back, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. He didn't have a Christian upbringing. He didn't grow up in the temple and in the synagogue. How did he know this? Because God had worked in his life. In fact, 
John MacArthur has a sermon on this, or at least a 45-minute teaching, and um, his title is uh, Nine Healed, One Saved. Because if you look at the very end of the section, then Jesus said to him, rise and go, your faith has, now most translations say made you well. The ESV has a little footnote, another translation, saved you. Everywhere else in the Bible is translated saved. Well, he was already made well when he was on the way to the priest. What Jesus is saying is your faith has saved you because you found the Savior. Nine healed, one saved. And people come to church and they're seeking fellowship and reassurance and comfort and guidance in life and ministry for their children and a place to get married and a place to be buried. And all those things are here at the church. But healing is only part of it. Salvation, meeting the Savior, is the key part of it. And what's the marker? Pull it together. What's the marker? Thanksgiving. A thankful heart. That's the marker. And that's why Jesus said, whoa, wait a minute. We're not ten, we're not all ten cleansed? What a miracle. This is not just one person. It's ten at one time. Without touching, without speaking. All right, turn around and go to the priest. Done. That's power. We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God? Was no one found to return and give praise to God? See, pagans don't thank God. Paul said to the Corinthians, what do you have that you were not given? The hard-working farmer says, I sweated and worked day and night to bring in this crop. Well, who provided the seed with a genetic disposition to grow and multiply? Who gave the sun and the rain? Who gave you life? Who gave you the strength to work? What do you have that you weren't given? Aren't you going to thank God for all that? No. I got what I wanted, I got a crop, done. Well, what's the marker of the believer? Thankfulness. The grace of God to see the Savior. That's the marker. In fact, I've given you a scripture there in your bulletin from Romans 1.21, and it says, although they, non-believers, knew God, how did they know God? Through creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, and through conscience. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. There's the marker, the other way, not glorifying God or giving him thanks. And as a result, their thinking became futile darkened mind 
hands. And their foolish hearts is saying it's a foolish heart that recognizes God and then doesn't glorify him and thank him. But there's something worse than being foolish is being darkened. Is being darkened. And the difference is the light that God gives to be able to see that there's a Savior back here. See, there is an expectation of thanks. First Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances. For this, giving thanks, is God's will for you. God's will for us is that we give thanks because we're his people and we see the Savior. Well, when do you give thanks? I lost my job. What is the Christian reaction to that? Give thanks that he is in charge. I've become sick. I've lost a loved one. The election went the wrong way. Give thanks. God is in charge. He will provide. So Christians are characterized by thanks. Now, praise God, we live in a country where that is a characteristic. It's not a characteristic of socialist countries or communist countries or Hindu countries or Muslim countries. It's a, it's a characteristic of Christian-based countries. I didn't just say America was Christian. I said it was Christian-based, and that's undeniable. We hold these things to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Well, where does creator come from? Where did they get that idea from? From Genesis in the Bible. And so historically, America has been a Thanksgiving nation. You see those dates there? Do you know what the dates stand for? Well, what was 1619? 1619 was the first Thanksgiving in America. And it wasn't at Plymouth. It was at Berkeley Plantation in Virginia. And in fact, after 200 years, they have revived that Thanksgiving. And they call it Virginia Thanksgiving Festival. And it's the first Sunday of September. So you can down in Virginia. Because a bunch of people, it was about, I think it was 38, uh, came over. In 1619, they came into Chesapeake Bay and then worked their way south to near Richmond is where Berkeley Plantation is. And they were under orders, written orders. So Kathleen Woodleaf declared upon their arrival that there would be a celebration of thanksgiving yearly and perpetually kept holy as a day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. See, most Thanksgiving festivals in America are religious, not food, you see. And so they did it. Well, why don't we still have Thanksgiving Day based on the Berkeley plantation? Well, because about three years later, when there were about 500 colonists that had come there, Powhatan, the local Indian chief, figured out that they were going to keep coming. And so he got together and they killed about 347 of them. And so what did they do? 
they got on their ships and went back to England. And that was the end of that colony, and that was the end of that Thanksgiving, you see. So then, 1623, the pilgrims landed there in 1620, but the first winter they were uh, sickly from the oceanic passage. They didn't have a lot of food. They got there in the winter where they couldn't cultivate anything. They were, they were not farmers and hunters. They were merchants and scholars. They didn't know how to hunt. They didn't even know how to shoot a gun. Um, and so that first winter, because of the winter and the low food and the being worn out when they got there, over half of them died. And they had to bury them at night because if the Indians knew how few they were, they would have attacked, and that's what they feared. And so spring came, and the ship came back. And you know how many got on the ship and went back? Zero. No one went home. Because they felt God had called them to plant this colony. And they brought their wives and children. And that's why when we talk about leadership in the church, the first topic is calling. Are you called of God? Because if you're called of God, then you'll be equipped and enabled to do the work, and you won't be knocked out of doing your job by problems or resistance. And that's what happened in Plymouth. And so a couple of years later, really a year later when you count the season, 1623, they had a feast and they invited the Indians. And the Indians had helped them and they had a lot of food, but it wasn't the Indians said, let's have a thanksgiving to God. It was uh, the pilgrims. And let's see, I have written here, uh, William Bradford and a faith. Inasmuch as the great father has given us this year an abundant harvest of Indian corn, wheat, peas, beans, squash, garden vegetables, made the forest to abound with game and the sea with fish and clams, inasmuch as he has protected us from the ravages of the Indians, has spared us from pestilence and disease, has granted us freedom to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience. Therefore, I, your magistrate, do proclaim that all pilgrims gather at the meeting house on Thursday, November 29th, in the year of our Lord, 1623, there to listen to the pastor and render thanksgiving to Almighty God for all his blessings. I'm glad to be in a country that does that. Well, what's 1789? That was George Washington. Now, therefore, do I recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of the great and glorious being, that we may then all unite in rendering unto God our sincere and humble thanks for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have enjoyed. Well, what is 1862? 1863. This is Lincoln's proclamation. He wrote it in a lot smaller type font. So let's see if I can read it. These great things are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who while dealing with his anger for our sins, slavery, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that we should solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledge as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I therefore 
invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and all those who are at sea and those who are, are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwells in the heavens. And then what is uh, 1963? That was uh, John Kennedy, 13 days before he was killed, uh, issued a proclamation praising the God of creation for his abundance and blessing. So, you see, not only do we have an expectation of thanks, God expects thanks. It is his right. It is the natural, normal response of a creature that has been blessed, unless he's a tiger and doesn't have any sense of God in creation. And yet, here we are, nine out of ten don't think to come back and thank the one whom they beg for healing. There's something wrong with human beings. Do you see my logic? When you don't do the natural, normal thing, there is something wrong. And what is wrong is that we're fallen into sin. And sin is at base a rebellion. Think about Adam and Eve. They're in this garden. They have life. They have abundance. They have fellowship with each other and even with the animals. They're naming them. In the midst of all this, they do the one thing that God the Creator asked them not to do. Something's wrong with people. Something's wrong with us. We need to recognize it. What are the indicators that something is wrong with us? A lack of thanksgiving. What are one of the indicators that God is working in our midst, a heart of thankfulness. And that's why it's so important, and I'm so pleased that in Berkeley Plantation and in Plymouth, and from George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and John F. Kennedy, we have a history of thanking God at least once a year at harvest time. Well, this is what happened here in uh, Luke uh, 17, this guy came back and he thanked God. This is like the seventh inning stretch. You have to have a drink before third point. Will you notice some things just briefly about what's going on here? When he saw he was healed, he came back. First, I see in that a promptness of thanksgiving. When something good happens, don't wait. Right then, thank God. Say to him, thank you. Now, you can come in Sunday and thank him again. You see, go for it. That's why we're here. But as soon as he saw he was healed, he came back.
and he thanked Jesus. Thanksgiving should, first of all, be prompt. Don't delay because then you'll forget and you'll be distracted. Do it promptly. Uh, secondly, it was personal, individualized. He didn't go pay someone. He didn't wait for the choir to start up. He said, I've got to go back, and I've got to think about it. It was individually. So we praise him corporately this morning. You know, we had a litany of thanksgiving. That's because we're the church. But it's also privately, personally, individually. It's between you and God because you know what he's done in your life. Notice again that it involves praise. See, he was praising God. Thanksgiving involves praise. What did the Romans say? Knowing God, they neither glorified him nor gave him thanks. Thanksgiving leads to praise. That's how we know his life was changed. Not only was he thanking God, he was praising God. He not only was looking at what had happened in his life, he was looking at how Jesus, you don't know me, Jesus. You, ha you have no reason to do anything good for me. But your mercy and your grace caused you to expend the energy to heal me when nothing else would do. And not only that, I'm a Samaritan. I don't even have a right as a Jew. And the covenant promises, I have no claim to you. Remember the woman who was not a Jew came to Jesus and said, will you heal my son? And he said, we don't heal non-Jews. They're not part of the covenant family. And you remember what she said? Even the dogs at the table get a crumb. And he said, you will be healed. She had faith in Jesus that he was gracious. So we go from thanksgiving to glorified. Not only has he done great things for me, but he's done great things for everybody. He puts rain and sunshine on everybody, no matter what they believe or think or say or feel. He is so gracious, and his mercy just drips from heaven. He is a great and holy and gracious and merciful God. So the things that happen in my life for Thanksgiving end up in glorification for God. And that's why people tithe and give thank offerings, you know? That's why some of you support the mercy offering here for the deacons because someone helped you and you've been there and you just want to do something and like those Christmas boxes. Thankfulness leads to glorifying God by word and deed. I like this part in a loud voice, in a loud voice. I'm sorry, people. Praise, thankfulness is loud. It speaks up. He wants everybody to hear. Wow. You can just see him go, Jesus, can I have a word with you? I just wanted to thank you. That was awfully nice of you. I appreciate it. Just between me and you. 
for some, some reason, thankfulness and praise don't work that way. Praise is loud. Okay? And not only that, it's public. He came back, you know, Jesus passing through this village, all these people around, and he don't care who hears him. Now, it's nice to be a Samaritan. You got nothing to lose. Maybe those Jews associating with Jesus will be put out of the temple. Are you afraid to publicly praise God because you have something to lose? That's understandable. Use discretion. You remember my two girls, faith and discretion. And what else do I hear? Uh, it was passionate. Look at there. He threw himself at Jesus' feet. He was a changed person. He had a passion for thanksgiving. He had a passion for praising God. And it showed himself in the way he comported himself. You see, I jokingly say other denominations have it on us. We've got all these five gates. Eye gate, ear gate, nose gate, taste gate, touch gate. And some churches you've got incense and you've got bells and you've got a transformation of, you know, elements and, and you've got a kneeling thing so you can get down into it. And all those things help communicate worship. And we come in here and you sit there like a bunch of lumps on a log. And now again I get a smile or a laughter. But I don't know how we got this way in Protestant worship. Well, I know how we did because those other things were manipulative. And some of them were just downright wrong and unbiblical. And so we did a, you know, this dance back and say, we're going to touch that. And somehow, you know, you heard that this uh, one church put in motion detectors as a way to conserve energy. So that if there was no motion in the church for like 15 minutes, all the lights in the church went out. <laughs> yep, 15 minutes into the service, all the lights in the sanctuary went out. And they stayed off for the rest of the service. It wasn't until they took up the offering that the lights came back on. And no lights during the sermon, you know, because the pastor the whole time was. So I don't know how we got into this because I'm looking at this guy here. He's shouting out loud. He's throwing himself down at the feet of Jesus. He's into this, okay? And, you know, some churches, they actually move uh, when they sing. I'm afraid this leper might come to some of our worship sometimes and say, what's wrong with them people? They must not have anything to be thankful for or praise God for. And, and then it says here, he threw himself at Jesus' feet. It humbled the daylights out of him. Thanksgiving is humbling. And that's why a lot of people and a lot of us avoid it sometimes. Because it's a hard thing to say, I don't have anything except what I was given. And I got to thank somebody for it. That's very hard. 
for a lot of people to do, isn't it? And that's why it's a hallmark of those people who couldn't save themselves and had to finally say, I need a Savior. I can't live a good enough life to make up for my sin. I need a spotless lamb to die in my place. And that's why it's so hard. And that's why it's a hallmark of a Christian and a sign of new life when there's thankfulness and when there's glorifying God. God expects and deserves our thankfulness. Our our blessed nation has a history of it. We have eyes and hearts and minds to see and appreciate them. May God make us thankful people, thankful church, and pray God, a thankful nation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a good and great God and you do work in our lives the way you do in this leopard's life because his faith saved him. But the faith comes from you. Would you give us the faith, the ability to see and appreciate with loud voices and humble hearts your great blessings to us. You are a great, generous, and gracious God. We proclaim it in Christ's name. Amen.